Well, let's begin with a prayer, and then I'll get into an explanation of how we'll, how we'll attack this class on the parables. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that we might rightly understand your word and profit from it, especially here in the preaching, the parables of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be blessed by them to understand more deeply the nature of your kingdom and the nature of our roles as men within that kingdom. These things we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. All right, so... Um, Maybe if the best way to introduce this or to start this would be if you have a study Bible, a Lutheran study Bible, flip open to page 1609. If you don't, yeah, 1609. And if you don't have a Lutheran study Bible, you should put it on your Christmas list. It's really a fantastic resource. Um, and and that's, that's true even if you don't count yourself a Lutheran. It's a fantastic resource. Obviously, I'm not uh, ashamed to let you know when I disagree with the study Bible, but it's pretty rare that I do. So on page 1609 of, of your Lutheran study Bible, if you have it, and if you don't, do not despair. We'll only be here momentarily. This is more just to introduce to you the nature of the problem of studying the parables. Because some parables are labeled as parables in the text itself, some are not, when clearly that's what they are. Uh, those of you online, if you wouldn't mind just hitting the mute button real quick, and then you can always unmute if you do have a question or comment. It just helps me keep my train of thought from derailing. Uh, so we've got all manner of parabolic sayings in the scriptures, and that's what's illustrated so well for you on page 1609, where you've got that chart off on the right-hand column. And let me just kind of introduce to you the problem, uh, the parabolic sayings. The first one is the wedding guests, and you can look at the references, Matthew 9.15. That's one verse. <laughs> that's not really what comes into your mind when you think of a parable, Okay. So if that's one extreme, there are others that we're literally told by the text that it is a parable. And that let's say that that's the other extreme. Then there's almost everything on the spectrum in between in terms of gray. One of the things that the study Bible points out, and, and maybe I'll just read this little pair, these two little paragraphs up at the top left of that page. And if you don't have it again, don't despair. We won't be here long. It reads, the differences between parables, allegories, similes, and metaphors. Ooh, anybody else having PTSD from grade school, school uh, <laughs> grammar? Yeah. These differences are not easily defined. Often there is scarcely any difference. In a technical sense, the word parable, Greek parable, <laughs> ordinarily means Quote, a complete imaginary story that illustrates some spiritual truth. But the word originally signified the placing of two or more objects together for the sake of comparison. In the Gospels, parables are typically one allegorical 
stories that reveal how God is inaugurating his heavenly reign on earth through Jesus, or two, such a story teaching disciples how they should live in view of God's reign. The public preaching of our Lord assumed the general characteristic of speaking in parables. For example, quote, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable, end quote, and that from Matthew 13.34, which is to say that most scholars are agreed that the parables we do have recorded in the scriptures are not all the parables our Lord used to teach, and it seems to be a major feature in all of his preaching. Continuing just to finish out from the study Bible, this is clearly seen in the synoptic Gospels. Remember, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sin, same optic, eye, with the same view, the same lens. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the same lens or eye toward uh, the uh, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the essential narrative that they want to tell. Of course, as you studied John, you noticed how completely different his view on things is, his angle. So, again, this is clearly seen in the Synoptic Gospels. However, only one parabolic saying appears in the Gospel of John, the Good Shepherd, chapter 10, 1 through 21. And as you might imagine, that also is up for debate. In the research that I did, uh, there are plenty of people who say there's nothing parabolic in John. There are a few who want to say that John itself is parabolic, you know, it's just got this entire nature of, uh, of elusivity to it, um, where nothing is easy to nail down. Okay, so the chart at right lists Jesus' parabolic sayings in the synoptics, though it does not necessarily list all his parabolic sayings. For more on parables and their interpretation, okay, and then you can go to these other places, the enigmatic sayings on page 1775, for example. All right, so then looking at this list of 55 different references, some of them only a verse long, I suppose one way that we could proceed would be to just take these one at a time, picking randomly from one gospel or another. Uh, but I've opted out of doing that. I don't intend to do that. We can visit any of these that uh, you think might be of value if we happen to skip one. What I thought to do, and it's difficult to see on this chart, so you'll just have to see it as we go along. But what I've opted to do, there are two sections, and they're parallel. Uh, one section in Mark chapter 4 and another section in Matthew chapter 13. And these sections are foundational for how to understand the parables. They describe why it is that Jesus preaches in parables, and in one case, in the case of Mark, even how we are to hear or listen to those parables. So that's where I would like to start tonight, simply with Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 4, and we're going to look at um, his introduction to the parables and the theology of the parables. It's really a theology of the word. 
And then as we progress along, we'll do the parallel section in Matthew's gospel, uh, skipping and or going very quickly through the overlap with Mark's gospel. But these, this will provide us the biblical foundation of the theology of the parables. Again, why Jesus says them and how we should hear them. And from there on, what we'll do is we'll use Matthew as our backbone, but we will go off and uh, listen to Luke in his major uh, section on the parables, probably most famous to you, the three uh, parables of the lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son, sometimes called the lost boy or the lost boys, plural. Um, but we'll we'll look at that giant section in Luke. And other than that, we're going to um, probably spend most of our time in Matthew. So we will progress along, and I'll just kind of let you know where we're at. Eventually, I may have a worksheet. I've been working on that draft for uh, several hours today, and I'm not happy with it. It's uh, very, very challenging to map out the parables as they're presented in the three synoptics because they're constantly jumping around and overlapping. You can tell that just if you look at this chart again on 1609, you could see that um, there's overlap and not overlap and semi-overlap uh, that abounds. Okay, so that's all the introduction that I have in mind. Again, we'll turn to Mark chapter 4, and I know most of you have already turned there. Um, as I'm getting myself oriented, if there's any questions or comments or anything you'd like to add, I'm happy to entertain them at this point. Yeah, Barry. Uh Somewhere in the teaching, uh, Jesus made it clear that he, he taught parables for the reason so that unbelievers would not understand it. Mm -hmm. So I guess you're going to get to that problem. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So I don't want to jump ahead, but if that's thought out and answered, that was it. Absolutely. Yeah, that the reason for Jesus speaking in parables is described. Uh, we're going to cover every place where it is described. Let's put it that way. And we'll look at that in some depth and detail. But unbelievers now that look at it and they're probably confused. So it, it takes the Holy Spirit then to reveal the truth in them? Or? Yeah, I don't want to get the cart ahead of the horse. Let's wait and see uh, just how Mark art articulates that in his, in his gospel and how it functions in his gospel. It functions in Matthew's gospel in a similar way, but there is some distinction to be made. Okay. Yeah, great, great question and great point. Okay, as we look at Mark's gospel, uh, one thing I do want to do very quickly with you is just flip to chapter one. We're going to do nothing more than just get a sense for where we are in the presentation of Mark's gospel. It's, of course, we know that the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, verbally inspired, but that doesn't mean that we can't look at each book as its own literary unit and work by a human author. You know, there's that kind of parallel between our Christology and the scriptures where Christ is true God and true man, and the scriptures are truly God's word, but also truly man's word. They're penned by human authors inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
So with that in mind, we want to do a little bit of literary criticism, looking at the nature of the book and the way that the author has laid things out. It'll help us with our comprehension. Mark begins his gospel with, uh, and abruptly, that's the nature of Mark's gospel, but he begins it with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So there is some, though less than what John does, some interplay here uh, with Genesis, but the point being that with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, a new creation has begun. All right. John the Baptist marks the beginning of that new creation with the messengers sent before the face of Jesus. And I will simply point out verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the dawning of the new beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is instantiated through the baptism that is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? So that is to say, you are cut to the heart by the preaching of repentance. And what shall we do? We should be baptized. And in that baptism, um, so as we're repenting, that's to get into the baptismal waters and our sins are there washed away. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, as that's going on, then, um, and and here's where we're going to fly real fast because it's it's not a class on Mark. But after that, you have the baptism of Jesus. So again, baptism is the beginning of Mark's gospel. Um, Very short treatment of the temptation of Jesus. And typical for the synoptics, you have a kind of summary statement of Jesus preaching, which will be important for us to look at at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom or reign of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Obviously, he's converting men unto himself. That is the gospel. That is the essence of the gospel is that he has come to be the Messiah, the Savior. Okay, you have the calling of the first disciples. Again, look at how abruptly Mark treats all of this. You have a healing of a man with an unclean spirit, and then that healing broadening out to the crowds. Uh, Important again for us is uh, verse 38, where um, after he is healing everyone, he actually disappears and his disciples are looking for him. And when they find him, they're like, hey, where'd you go? Everyone still wants to be healed. And at verse 38, Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may Preach there also, for that is why I, in the ESV, came out. So we see here that Jesus' own self-understanding of his ministry is not chiefly one of healing and casting out demons, but one of preaching. The healing and casting out of demons are uh, concomitant with that, but are secondary to it. 
All right, he cleanses a leper, heals a paralytic, calls Levi, Matthew. And um, we're getting little snippets of red ink, little snippets of uh, statements from Jesus that illustrate for us his theology. Um, But again, we have nothing like a sermon here. Maybe at chapter 2, verse 17, we have a major thematic element where Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, as we just simply move through the text, even though you're starting to see again more red ink, we are without a sermon or without a description uh, any more than we've looked at of Jesus preaching. As we turn into chapter 3, we see continued healing, continuance with a great crowd, the 12 Um, are called and named. You have very early on the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit treated. Um, Jesus' mother and brothers think he's lost his mind. And then we hit chapter 4, which chapter 4 functions in Mark's gospel a little bit the same way that the Sermon on the Mount functions in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount is the first introduction, detailed introduction to what Jesus is preaching and teaching. It's foundational for it. And in many other places where it's simply stated that Jesus was preaching, let's say, in a synagogue or to the crowds, and it's not given us what the specific content or nature of that preaching was, you can simply go back to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and see what the nature and the content of that preaching is. So that sermon is illustrative of the entire nature of his preaching. Um, Here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, as you could see from our very hasty introduction. This is the first place where you get the preaching of Jesus laid out in sum and total. And here, as in Matthew, it will be emphasized how frequently Jesus preaches in parables, um, even beyond what's recorded for us in the scriptures. So far, so good? All right. So let's look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, Some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. 
other seed, that's this is the third kind of seed or the third uh, mention of a seed would be a better way to put it. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right. So let's just do a cursory reading of this. Um, And obviously, it's not as though we're hearing this for the first time. Sometimes this is called the parable of the sower as the heading of the ESV has. Sometimes it's called the parable of the four soils, an emphasis on the distinguishing element being not the sower, not the seed, but the four different places in which the seed lands. Um, And then another way uh, that one could look at this, it's clunky to say it this way, but it is a theme that people introduce, and that's the different um, fates of the seed. So the seed isn't what's changing, but the place in which it falls is what's changing. So this uh, parable comes with an interpretation. Um, Again, just to shorthand it here, and then we'll get to what our Lord says. Uh, Obviously, the sower casting the seed is likened unto our Lord himself, the seed being the word, and the word is landing in different places um, where it's not received or received to one degree or another. Okay. So in the road, it's, or the path, or the hados, it's not received and the birds come and devour it. Okay. When it falls onto the rocky ground, it is received and immediately springs up since there's no depth of soil. But when the sun rises, it's scorched since it has no root and it withers away. Now, an immediate take on that is interesting. So, um, you know, if if the first if the first were a person, it falls upon them. It doesn't penetrate them in any such way, and the birds come and take it away. There's zero penetration, zero fruitfulness. If we were to liken. Verse five, that seed falling on the rocky ground to a person, um, this, there's not much soil. It immediately springs up. This is the kind of person that receives it with joy and exuberance that is very short lived. We've probably all seen people like that. Sometimes when people are really, really excited about the word for the first time, I start to get nervous. There's a kind of passion that's good. And there's a kind of passion that's over the top, and you can almost see it burning out already to shift analogies. You can almost see it springing up too fast, um, and you, you're recognizing that there's no depth of soil there. Okay, when the sun rose, it was scorched. So the sun, which is meant for it to grow, ends up scorching it. Okay, that sun is commonly interpreted as affliction. Because the affliction comes, and uh, just as the sun causes crops to grow, affliction causes faith or the word within someone to grow. Um, but in this case, uh, 
since there is no depth of soil, and as we're told, there is no root, the sun, the affliction actually affects the destruction. So it withers away. All right, and then just again, we're doing a real cursory treatment. We're about to have our Lord um, himself interpret it for us. So, you know, I'm just trying to give a broad way in which um, the parable itself has often been discussed. All right, and then uh, other seeds fall among the thorns, thorny ground. And the thorns grow up and choke it. Okay, um, and thus it yields no grain. Now that statement that it yields no grain probably indicates that it has taken root for a time, but then the thorns are choking it out. And the key here is that it's not fruitful. So it does experience some growth, but it's not fruitful. And then eight other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, which seems to be uh, um, like an exaggeration. It seems to be um, hyperbole. Okay, so on to verse 10, and then we'll get our Lord's concrete treatment. And we will, we might even note some differences between the uh, interpretation our Lord gives and the nature of the parable itself. It's kind of one of the challenging things about preaching a text like this is because the parable itself draws out more than our Lord interprets from it. Okay. All right, at verse 10, and when he was alone, so Jesus said this, of course, he's ended it enigmatically with he who has ears to hear, let him hear. <laughs> and his disciples are like, uh-oh. <laughs> when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you, it has been given the mysterion, the mysterion, the mystery or secret of the kingdom or reign of God. But for those outside, Everything is in parables so that, now it's not that outside everything's in parables, it's in parables for everyone, okay? But for them, it's in parables such that or so that, now quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Okay, and this is to your point, Barry, and to your question. What are we to make of this? All right, the study Bible does a good job, and I think uh, with this question, and I think it's relatively straightforward. Now, in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, these things take on a little bit of a different flavor, but because here in Mark's gospel, it's at the beginning, it's introduced at the beginning of Jesus' preaching. And it's stated rather positively that the mystery of the kingdom is being communicated to those who have ears to hear it. All right. How do you get ears to hear and understand the parables? Yeah, by believing the plain word. In fact, that's kind of the, it's not the irony, it's the intentionality of both our Lord and Mark having the parable of the sower as the foundation. Okay. As the sower sows, the word goes out where it is believed. It is that good soil that receives it and bears much fruit. Um, to put that parallel, you grow ears to hear. 
And then as the because you understand the gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Christ, as the parables are spoken, you know what they're about because you know what the kingdom is about. Does that make sense? So to you who to whom it has been given, that is, you've been given the gift of faith, even more will be given. But to those who have not, even what they have will be taken away. They hear the parables, and because they do not believe the simple gospel of Christ the Messiah, who's come to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, because they reject that and reject him, then the parables are spoken, and they're scratching their heads. Okay. Thus, in their unbelief, seeing they do not perceive, and in their unbelief, hearing they do not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. If they're to turn and be forgiven, they ought to do so at the plain preaching of Christ, that he is the Messiah and he's come for the salvation of the world. Okay, so what do the, this is the kind of the beauty of our Lord's parables. What do they do to those who have faith? Increase that faith and expand that faith and grow that faith Profiting it, what? What should we say? 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. But of those who have not and reject Christ, even what they have will be taken away from them. Whatever scriptural knowledge, whatever knowledge of God's word they do have is rendered unprofitable and worse than unprofitable. So far, so good on that point. Yeah, please. So, verse 12. Uh, when he says, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn be forgiven. Is it correct to interpret that that he's saying, um, if they understand, they'll understand that they'll have to turn and be forgiven, but they don't want to, so they pretend like they don't get it? Mm, I think that that, I mean, I think that's an okay take on it. I don't think you said anything wrong. I don't think that that's quite what he's after. I think it's a little too apologetic. I I think that um, there's something a, a lot more stark here, and that is to say that the parables function as gift and blessing to those who have faith, and they function as confusion and curse to those who do not. So not like a like pretending to be used. That's what I was just, it occurred to me that somebody might say, Oh, well, I guess I don't get it because. Yeah, I, no, I, I don't want to repent. Okay. And that you, you actually bring up a good point. There's a sense in which the meaning of the parables is hidden to those who don't believe. Okay. Uh, because they don't understand the gospel and Christ and the nature of his church and the sacraments and what he's come to do. And so that there is a sense in which the ignorance is there. Okay. But there's another sense in which they understand perfectly well what he's saying in the parable. They perceive that he's talking about them. Remember that part? Uh, I think it's the uh, parable of the vineyard where um, he tells the parable and they're like, uh, hey, yeah, he's talking about us killing the prophets and now about to kill him. And ironically, what do they want to do? Kill him and see. okay, so there's the other thing. All right. They're not ignorant of what the meaning of the parable is. They're ignorant of why it is that Jesus is teaching it and what his salvific purposes are. So much so that they're 
unbelief and hatred becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy so that no sooner has he preached the parable they're playing and they perceive it's about them they act right in accord with what he's just said yeah so there's a deadening that takes place again uh they see but are blind they hear but don't understand um, they receive the words of life, but because they're dead themselves, they seek to murder that life. Okay, so this is, um, <clears throat> I think this is one of the most important, and I think this is one of the most important things about how Jesus preaches. And I think that he does it in ways that I uh, that nobody else does. I can't think of any of the apostles. I mean, at times they do this, but this is almost exclusive to Jesus. And that is that he says one thing, okay, one parable. And with that parable, he simultaneously blesses and curses. I think he does the same thing in the Beatitudes. Blessed are these folks. Well, I'm not that folk. Well, then you're not blessed. See, well, I am that folk. Then you're blessed. You see, so with a single statement, he blesses and curses. With a single parable, he rewards faith and he punishes unbelief. And that's simply what our Lord does. So that's the fun. I mean, that's the fun when you get guys, uh, you know, in the, <clears throat> well, we, um, we suffer sometimes from taking, uh, as Lutherans, we suffer sometimes from taking the law and gospel distinction, which is very good, and ripping it so far out of the scriptures and playing with it in our own minds abstractly that we tie ourselves all up in knots. And one of the funnest ways to sort of cut that knot, as it were, is to take a singular statement of Jesus like the Beatitudes or like this parable and say, law or gospel. Because the only honest answer is yes. <laughs> right Now, I think that there's frankly a deeper theology here. I'll, I won't give it the, uh, the treatment it probably deserves or needs for you to really grasp hold of it, unless you're familiar with it already, of course. And that is that... Um, in the beginning, when God spoke prior to the fall into sin, is really properly speaking no such thing as law and gospel. There's just the word, and the word is good. You can even analyze that when God says, Don't eat of the fruit, is that law or gospel? Yes, they're indistinguishable. It's very good that they don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in obedience to that, in faithfulness to that, Luther goes so far as to say that's a sacrament. That's where we would still be worshiping today, um, where God sets the limits and bounds of creatureliness while bestowing on us infinite other blessings. Okay, so law or gospel, yes. Now suddenly we fall into sin and we hear that word of God as different. Even though we might still be inclined to say it's good, it might be good and yet condemning or good and yet salvific. And so thus it becomes necessary to distinguish between law and gospel. But already then in Christ, what you start to see is that being repaired. 
to where law and gospel are already being enfolded back into one word that he proclaims. And that's a foretaste of the feast to come when, again, we're simply receiving the word of God and we're not going, does that condemn me or save me? Is that a curse or a blessing? Um, but it's just good. And every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is unto us uh, blessing. Even if it's a thou shalt not, it's a tremendous gift. And in that no are a million other yeses. Okay. All right. That's about as far as I want to go with all that. Sorry to take us far afield. So there is there is some mystery here. And of course, um, as we get into Matthew, Matthew makes this even clearer because you can tell by Matthew's gospel, Matthew 13 is where he introduces the parables. The parables are coming at that point in Matthew specifically because he's being rejected. Thus, we're introduced to the theology of the parables such that those who believe in him will be blessed by them. Those who are rejecting him will be cursed by those parables. Again, in the language of Isaiah, seeing they won't perceive, hearing they won't understand. The ears to hear are very important. Uh, Mm. And that's enabled by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, In Revelation, I think that who, who has ears to hear, let him hear, that's repeated, what? 40 times? Yeah, yeah, probably. And it's the same essential meaning there. Yes, it's always the same essential meaning. Um, here in a moment, we are going to get to, uh, if, we, if we're able to get to verse 21 this evening, uh, we're going to see Jesus begin to talk about hearing more and give us a little catechesis on the nature of that hearing. Okay, um, so we will here in Mark get a little bit more on that. We have now why Jesus, or the reason why Jesus speaks in parables, and then we'll have a hearing in regard to the word in general and the parables in specific coming up. Okay, yes, please. This is reinforcing these nitwits that are listening to this, because what they're saying, Isaiah and Jeremiah, all these are saying the same thing. When they come to like Jeremiah, we want to know what the Lord wants us to do. And he says, why are you coming to me? You're not going to do what I tell you anyway, you nitwit. So why why do you want this? You don't have ears to hear anyway. It just, it just, it's yeah. just a joke. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's true. It's true. say that only perhaps God's own sheep and or the even the believer uh-huh. at that time uh-huh. are the only ones who be able to receive and understand the Yeah. Now, okay, we didn't touch on this yet. Where does the sower sow to sow his seed? Everywhere, even where the sower knows it's not going to grow. So this would be dogmatically stated: God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not of the elect, but of the world. The gospel goes out not to the elect, but to the world. Uh, when men reject him, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but alas, you weren't elect. No, you would not have it. So the objective universal nature of grace, the sower sowing his saving, eternal life-giving seed everywhere is in view. 
but it's rejected by the majority. So it, it I, I, majority. Yeah, Gordon just one, one second, one, one second, real quick. So out of the four kinds of soil, only one kind receives it. Okay, please. I was just going to say, Gordon has a question. He's been raising his hand. Oh, I'm so sorry. The screen, the, the little pictures of you guys are so small. Uh, yeah, please, Gordon, go right ahead. Uh, yeah, along those lines, you might try clicking on gallery view instead of speaker view. Um, should be in the upper right corner. Upper right corner, view, gallery. Well, that's a little better. <laughs> a little better. Uh, anyway, um, t- getting back to the, the curse and the blessing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the blessing thing comes at different levels. I mean, the, the, the every time I read one of these uh, parables, I get something else out of it. Uh, I mean, the, the very classic example is the prodigal son, where it's like, oh, yeah, it's the son. No, it's the brother. No, it's the father. No, it's so it's it's there are different layers of these things uh, to uh, use a Shrekish analogy. It's like an onion. You keep peeling the layers. and Right, right. In fact, when we get to this parallel section, In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew uh, 13, he actually ends with, you know, it's different language, but I think it's the same point you're making, where he likens a trained scribe uh, to one who uh, brings out treasures old and new. And so that's going to be the final kind of statement of our Lord in uh, Matthew 13 as to the nature of these parables, that you're not going to exhaust them. And so you're going to find truths uh, that are old and steadfast and truths that are new and interesting and enlightening and applicable to your circumstances. So, again, just the living word of the living God and the fact that we're never going to exhaust these things. And it's there's a great blessing and joy in that. Okay, thank you, Gordon. Uh, anybody else? Anybody else? I'm sorry I had you waiting there for so long. Okay, so let's get into the interpretation at verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Again, we see him sowing the word everywhere. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. So that this is the first um, where the seed falls along the path or the hados, the way. Okay, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. All right. So one cause for unbelief is attributed simply to Satan. He snatches the word away. That's one cause for the word not bearing fruit within a person. All right, verse 16. And these are the ones. Now, we'll notice the the, uh, the plural here. So Christ is talking about people here as different kinds of soil. It's simply uh, how the text works, how the Lord interprets it. 
So again, verse 16, these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure. And there's that language uh, that, you know, anticipates uh, the tribulation and persecution. But endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises, that's parallel to the sun, is it not? When the sun rose, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word. So again, yeah, we're not just talking about your minivan getting a flat tire or some incidental (laughs) suffering. Uh, It is suffering on account of the word. Immediately they fall away. Now, this is one of the texts. It's not as clear here in uh, Mark's gospel as it is in uh, Luke's gospel, uh, that there is faith here, and then the faith is lost. But I think, I think, frankly, Mark's gospel is plain on that point, that they fall away. So they believe for a time and then fall away. Okay, so that is the second kind of person, and the second cause of unbelief. So um, having no root within themselves, and thus when persecution comes, they fall away. So we have two different causes here then. The one cause Satan, the second cause having no a person having no root and falling away in the face of persecution. Okay, 18, the third kind and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world by the way, here the word is probably is probably technical language because um, the hearers of the word are those who were not yet circumcised and were allowed in the outer courts of the temple and were reckoned to be part of Israel. So in all likelihood, these have faith too. Um, these are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. All right. So these are those that fall away, not on account of tribulation or persecution, but rather on account of good stuff. That's human worry. What's that? Is that cares in the world? Is that human worry? I don't think it's human worry so much as it's like, um, I've got to, uh, I can't come to the wedding feast because I've got to go inspect the oxen I just bought. And uh, it's a beautiful day. I don't think I'll make it to divine service after all the beach is calling. And, uh, you know, I had a really hard week, so I think I'll just uh, bag it and sleep in. Uh, How do we used to say it at seminary? Um, where did you go to church today? And someone would say, oh, uh, St. Mattress. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, so, so the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the di- desires for other things, this, these are things that are in and of themselves not evil, I would say. Let me see if that's true. Well, the deceitfulness of riches. Yeah. It's not that riches themselves are evil. It's not that, um, you know, things of the world themselves, you know, themselves are evil. 
Uh, it's not that the desire for other, or it's not that the other things. So this is a misprioritization such that um, God's word and kingdom just disappear. And I, and again, this may be hard. I may be failing at describing it in the abstract. You can probably very easily think concretely of people in your life, you know, who it's not that they've outright rejected or apostatized or faced persecution and fallen away. They've just slowly drifted off and oh, yeah, I'm still a Christian. When's the last time you went and saw Jesus at church? I don't know. Years, but I'm still a Christian. Okay, that's the third kind of soil. Uh, and then we can see this theme fruitfulness too. I mean, it's not, it's not, um, this is justification and sanctification together, but this is what God desires is this kind of cosmic fruitfulness um, individually and corporately in his church. And that's a theme that'll be revisited at the end of the gospels, fruitfulness. All right, um, at verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word. I we just cannot be embarrassed by saying that there are some people who are good soil and I aspire to be good soil. If we're embarrassed of saying that, then we're going to be embarrassed of Jesus' sermon, okay? We're not saying that some people are worthy, um, and other people aren't, that some people merit this worthiness and other people don't. These are things we're not saying. Um, why are some saved and not others? Jesus does not answer here, but he does give descriptors of different kinds of people and the way in which the word interacts with them. It may well be the case that when you were 16, you were bad soil of one kind or another. And when you turned 24, you suddenly received and were good soil. There's a mystery. Nobody makes themselves good or bad soil. That's not even in view. Really, what's rather in view is, how is it that if faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word, how is it that the word fails? What stops the word from functioning? We have Satan, we have persecution, and which really then is the person without root, so the person here to blame, um, because others face persecution are fine. We have the cares of the world. Um, the thorns. And again, we all face those thorns. We all live in this world. Okay. But for some, it proves too much. Um, those that were sown again, just revisiting 20, because this is what we all aspire to be. And that's what's going to come up in the next section. There shouldn't be a paragraph break. It's misleading that there is. Um, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word. There's the theme. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it, believe it, and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. There's the fruitfulness that the word has within us. Okay, again, the soil, what is it in and of itself? Nothing. So everything is attributed to the word. With the seed, when the seed lands, life and fruitfulness abound on account of the seed. So, again, the glory doesn't belong to man here, but to God. Okay, now, look at verse 21. And he said to them, there's no, there's no break here. Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? And it's actually kind of hilarious. 
because we're talking about an open flame here. Would you like to put it under a bed? <laughs> I really do believe, uh, no doubt about it, this is our Lord's sense of humor, and this would have had loud laughs as soon as he said it. No, you don't put it under a basket. The basket's likely to light on fire. Candle's certainly going to go out, or the lamp's certainly going to go out. And if you put it under a bed, it's going to be a disaster. You put it on a stand. Okay. Not for nothing is hidden except to be manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to the light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, again, parallel, pay attention to what you hear. And here's the active component. I mean, again, I'm just not one to like let quote unquote theology get in the way of what our Lord is saying. <laughs> because at the moment that quote unquote theology gets in the way of what our Lord is saying, we're not doing theology anymore. At least not in the proper sense. So there is here just unabashedly, unashamedly, an action that our Lord calls us to. Namely, to pay attention to what we hear. In this way, we are good soil. So pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What does that mean? What do you think that that means? Maybe more that you meditate on the word, the more sixty-fold, thirty-fold, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, very plainly, what you put into it, you're going to get out of it. I tell I tell our kids that in confirmation class all the time. It shouldn't be some big secret. <laughs> If you go ready to listen to the word of the Lord and ready to drink it in, the Lord's going to have exactly what you need and more abundantly than you imagine. But if you go there like, oh, gosh, when can I get out of here? Oh, you guys preach. Okay, time to go to the bathroom. All right, time to work on my shopping list. And then you, you walk out of church going like, oh, I just kind of feel shallow in my faith. I don't know why. I'm just going on. I kind of feel distant from God. I'm, I, I can't put my finger on why that might be. Yeah. Okay. So pay. I mean, this is what our Lord is telling his disciples. And by extension, us, there's an activity here. Pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use. It will be measured to you. I mean, elsewhere, he says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. He continues. Um, so, and I love this. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. As if to say, you, you give me a one and I'll give you a 10. <laughs> you give me a 10 and I'll give you a hundred. Okay? This, isn't a, this isn't strictly speaking a meritorious thing here. All right. The Lord is eager to be gracious to us, but he is at the same time telling us what it means to be good hearers, good soil, good recipients of his word. So, it will be measured back to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And again, that's exactly what I was talking about back at verse 12 with the description of why he preaches in parables. If you have faith that Jesus is the Messiah, you have faith in the forgiveness of sins and in the words he plainly says, then when he preaches the parables, even more will be given to you. If you reject him, reject the forgiveness of sins that he brings, then you have not. And even what you have will be 
taken away. You're simply going to be out in the dark. Okay, now we left over this, um, but going back to the lamp, what is this lamp? I think that this lamp is very clearly the word of God. It's the light shining in the darkness. It's not meant to be put under a basket, which you can do with God's word really easily. It's not meant to be put under a bed. Putting it there is going to be a disaster for you and everybody in the house. It's meant to be put on a stand. And that word that is light will enlighten everything, not least of all you and all who are dwelling in the house. For nothing is hidden. And here again, we have almost that language of uh, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Back in verse 11. For nothing is hidden or secret except to be made manifest. Why does God give us his, the lamp of his word? So that it might enlighten everything and enlighten everything all the more. There's no wonder then why in the early church, baptism was referred to as enlightenment. Conversion and the act of baptism were referred to as enlightenment, becoming sons of light being enlightened by the true light and thus being and becoming the light of the world. Remember how Jesus says that in Matthew, you are the light of the world. Okay. So to be enlightened by the lamp of God's word, and then um, certainly not excluding to shine ourselves and let our faith informed by the word. So shine nothing wrong with that. That's Jesus preaching in Matthew five. Okay, and so the whole point then, nothing is hidden except to be manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to the light. I think that that's exactly this. The one who has, more will be given. So as the light enlightens, it's going to continue to enlighten. Uh, Whatever is mysterious or secret will ultimately be revealed by the word in and through the word. So this is tantalizing, wonderful uh, language meant to uh, romance and seduce us into a love for God's word and a passion for God's word that um, we would allow, pay attention and allow it to dwell in us richly and then just simply multiply and increase again, 30 fold, 60 fold, a hundred fold. And then I think you can, you know, to one degree or another, you can actually see that manifest in people and in their faith. You can probably, if, if it's more comfortable for you, you can think back to yourself and be like, the harvest was pretty weak back then. Um, by God's grace, it's getting a little better. I know more than I once knew, uh, understand more deeply than I once understood. And that's wonderful. That's the point. We shouldn't be shy about that. We don't have to be self-righteous about it, okay? But we don't need to be shy about it either. Okay, so now we've had why Jesus preaches the parables. That's properly speaking, verse 12, and how we should hear the word in general and the parables in specific, that's, uh, well, to put a fine point on it, verse 24. Of course, that whole section. All right, and I see that we're, we're one minute shy. Now, we've got the parable of the seed growing, the parable of the mustard seed. So um, maybe what we'll do as a plan is we'll... Uh, We'll tackle these things um, next week. Now, next week's Thanksgiving week. Are we meeting on Monday? Does everybody want to meet on Monday? Generally? 
Okay, let's do it. So what we'll tackle is we'll tackle the, the last part of this section in Mark, teaching about the parables and the Word of God and how to read them. We'll go to the parallel section in Matthew, and we'll kind of leave off of some of the redundancy there. Uh, but we will note what Matthew does differently and the points that he emphasizes to slightly different effect, although very similar. That will probably occupy us. Um, but otherwise, we'll plan to just then launch into the parables that we see, um, again, using Matthew as our backbone, uh, spending sizable portions of our time, of course, in the Gospel of Luke with the famous parables that are recorded there. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. The Lord be with you. We should close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.